Revenge of the Aces Kids has been rated P for podcast. Gonna fix you. Oh, uh, it's 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 him as a thing. It's the problem. Isn't it? it's, it's more of a visual, like. Oh. oh, don't tell me the answer. I want to figure it out for myself. Thank you very much. Hmm. Maybe if I type some random numbers and symbols into BIOS, it always seems very productive when they do it in cinema. I'm just gonna do my tax, which is terribly exciting. So, um, and you can see films for like three quid. Oh, God, no, that wasn't the answer. Uh, restart, restart! Hello. Ah, Leo. I am preoccupied. Uh, well, yes, I should hope so. Uh, after all, we gave you the job of looking at the Matrix mainframe that we extracted before we left planet Earth. Uh, have you made any progress on finding anything useful in there? Yes, remember that old Justin subroutine program that sounded like Justin but wasn't really Justin? Lots of out-of-context comments from Justin. Yes, I remember that. What about it? I appear to have isolated it within the mainframe. It appears to have some form of sentience to itself. Perhaps if we could activate it and implement it around the ship, we could, you know, put our feet up and watch some television. Or, you know, have a pizza later. Personally, I feel overworked. Uh, yeah, I think that would probably be a very good idea. So, is, is this something that's likely to happen, you know, in the next ten minutes or so? Let me see if I give it a try here. This circuit here, power there... No, but round here is pretty culturally devoid, to be honest. That, that, that's, that's, that's Ken for you. Um. Oh, no, that doesn't seem to be right. Uh, maybe this toggle over here will help. Uh, yeah, I think you'd have to basically take a take a sound bite of, of some annoying thing you said. No, 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 it's no good. I'll have to go for solution number one. Um, I can't hear anything yet. Uh, you seem to have broken it. Hello! Uh, yeah, that doesn't sound like Justin, but it did say something. Hello? Hello! Uh, um, where is Justin? I'm here! Uh, Ian, you've broken Justin. I think I've here to create an alternative Justin. A different Justin. Other Justin, if you will. Although he is untested, how about we employ him in a discussion and see how he goes? All right, then. Well, um, I feel like talking about um, soundtracks. Just a general conversation about sound. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I've been listening to my ger- generic MP3 player device while I've been doing engineering around the ship. So that sounds like a good plan. Uh, yes, here we are. It is Revenge of the 80s Kids, and uh, we-, we are the 80s Kids, but slightly different to usual. Here is, we, uh... of course, me, Leo. And we also have Ian. Ian, and we have, as if we are in an alternate universe where things are slightly different and quirky, we have... Justin! Justin. Justin. Yes, this is Justin Park, who is uh, also called Justin. So, home audience, we've already been confused by this. This is your opportunity. We want to get your confusion out of the way as soon as possible. This is Justin, but not our Justin. Sorry, Justin. It's okay, I'm not hurt. It's okay. This is just like when mum had to explain the whole new dad thing to me. Um, so yes, uh, Justin Park, who is uh, well, let, maybe we should, uh, as it's an introduction. How how has this come to be, Justin? How are you with us this morning? Apart from obviously the engineering feats of the internet and Skype, how how have you come to wander into this place of madness and sanity this morning? Uh, well, I was in the pub last night and I received a Facebook message from you saying, do you fancy joining us tomorrow morning? And in my drunken stupor, I agreed to do it. 
Ah, uh, yes. You see, that's how we get all the new people who come on this show. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but uh, on a long basis, uh, you're an old uh, housemate of Ian's, aren't you? And, I am uh, indeed, yeah. And and so, yes, the, you, you would, from that moment when you first met Ian, you were trapped. This was inevitable we still laugh about the time the first time i met justin remember vividly let's not go for that story right now though (laughs) (laughs) okay off off there but yes today we are going to talk about soundtracks because well, the way that I, I, you know, obviously I went to see Ian and I met Justin, but the, the, we, the first creative project I think we all participated in was a CD uh, album, <laughs> remember those back in the day, called uh, Fancy a Quickie, which Justin was putting together, which was all songs under two minutes, wasn't it? All so- well, all songs roughly lasting a minute, the ultimate oh. length is no more than one minute twenty. All oh, right, there we go. It was, anyway, they were very short. And I think the most Herculean task that was completed and uh, most impressive feat was that if you put this CD on, you didn't feel like you were listening to something for a minute and then listening to something else. You actually, Justin, managed to arrange it as a sound collage that made it, it kind of flowed through. I listened to it many times and marveled at the fact that it just kind of tips through from one mood to the next, even though sometimes it does juxtapose rather than just going through it is a whole thing which is amazing uh, very much a concept album so in honor of this we are indeed going to discuss soundtracks today and we even started before the show to get into the sort of discussion of it if we go oh here's an important question that we should ask just a little bit of housekeeping we like to do are you an 80s kid justin am i an 80s kid yes yeah i grew up in the 80s so very much so was that's, i born in the 80s no. <laughs> That's good. Well, no, you're exactly the same as the rest of us. I think that to be, right, well, I don't want to be cruel here, but I think if you were born any time after about 83, I think you'd be pushing it to consider yourself an 80s kid, because by the time you were conscious of what was going on around you, it was nearly the 90s. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, yeah, if you were born in 1983, you wouldn't have been able to go see Ghostbusters first run. Oh, and that, I remember I is, that. That's an important qualification for being an <laughs> 80s kid. I, I've said that my wife was four at that time, so she probably doesn't remember it. Probably didn't get to go see it, but she's still uh, considered an 80s kid because she was born in 1980. So I think we let her off with that. But yeah, so there we go. Three 80s kids sitting around discussing soundtracks. And uh, I think there's a relevant uh, piece of information here that Ian can bring in. I think Ian's probably already nervous about this topic of conversation uh, because, because it's like, oh. well, this is the thing. When I met Ian, he had a reputation at college because yes. people at college believe. Don't talk about that. that he... For goodness sake, I, I obeyed the injunction. I don't see what all the fuss is about. <laughs> no, not that reputation. The other reputation. Oh, yes. This is like, oh, yeah, you're weird. You're that weirdo who doesn't like music. Because it... someone asked, what kind of music? Like, a lecturer asked, what kind of music do you like? And you just kind of sat there and went, I don't really like any music. That's like saying, I don't like food. You know, like, there's a lot of different types. What and is a strange thing called trans- colour of which you speak? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I under, later on, I, I asked you about this again and, and you had an answer. So what was that answer? What was my answer? Well, uh, I don't hate music. We have an expression on the 80s kids when, when it says, how come you haven't seen such and such film? This is remarkable. And the, the person can just simply get out of this by saying it never came up. Now, to have a life in which musical taste never comes up would be considered quite remarkable. But my parents not ones for listening to music anyway. My mum, you know, she listened to contemporary music, but, you know, she got married and left her LPs behind at home. And my dad was in things listening to like Hancock and the Goons. That's what he listened to on tape. My brother was obviously into a lot, into a lot of eighties music, but you know, that was my older brother's stuff. I, I, I didn't really, it never really caught on. So the closest thing I had to music that I had was soundtracks, which at the time I thought people don't consider this music music. It's not a song or it's not in a musical. It's an emotional you know, it's, I, can, I know it now is it's an emotional underbed that goes under something else. You know, it's an isolated element 
from a film or something. It's not really supposed to stand in itself as something you listen to and nod. So yes, I suppose I suppose that be. I mean, I mean, I didn't know who bands were, who who certain musicians were. I didn't know who Kurt Cobain was when he was alive and things like that. Well, just it never came up. My brother was listening to eighties eighties music and then he stopped listening to Adamant. And where do I go after that? Top of the Pops was a signal for me to turn over. You know, I was certainly aware of certain musicians because they were unavoidable, like Kylie Minogue. But as to a thing I was into, and I could point to particular tastes or styles that I liked, I had no idea. Instrumental was the closest, which is not necessarily true, incidentally. Incidentally. <laughs> not a genre. Not a genre. Yeah. Um, so, incidentally, yeah, but, not incidental. But what's interesting about it is, and I think that the reason the topic came up in particular was uh, because... You made some remark about some piece of music being similar to or being exactly the same as the... Oh, no, yeah, you were talking about Star Trek The Next Generation. And uh, you said, well, yeah, they used that uh, that piece of music off the Star Trek V soundtrack. And because, of course, you had the reputation, you don't like music. I was like, how do you know that? And you said, well, because I own the Star Trek V soundtrack. And you're like, I thought you said you didn't like music. You've been lying to me. Um, but uh, the, the two parts of that are, one, you were lying to me. But two, the thing that you owned was a soundtrack. And so, therefore, you know, uh, that's the way into music is that sound for film becomes an important thing. My brother owns the Star Trek II soundtrack. I never own a Star Trek II. I think the incident you were talking about, we were watching a horror film, and it was like some sort of Korean J-horror rip-off thing. And one of the musical tracks they used on it was a theme from Final Fantasy VII, which I definitely could identify. It's like, oh, but this is Eris' theme from Final Fantasy What's it doing here? Anyway, uh, yes, so... What do you mean I was lying? I think I was... I was, was like, I am, I'm no, largely no, musically so ignorant. Thing- no, no, no. I think I think it's that thing of because you managed to cement that reputation as he doesn't like music. And so there are people who went to college with us who um, are still I still aware of their existence, who to this day maintain. Oh, Ian, he likes Doctor Who and doesn't like music. They still think yeah, they're that. putting that on my tombstone, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. Uh, so, so that's, that's going to be an interesting thing and a perspective. I mean, yeah, you mentioned game soundtracks, so that could come in as well. But yeah, uh, so I think probably as it's sort of a getting to know you phase, we could turn to Justin now and say, so Justin, uh, what's your favourite soundtrack? My favourite soundtrack? Uh, there's a couple of them really. One of my favourite soundtracks has never actually been produced on CD or vinyl, uh, and that would be the soundtrack to An American Wealth in London which is probably one of my favourite movies as well. Um, Within that, you've got any kind of song which has the word moon connected to it, such as uh, Van Morrison uh, doing Moon Dance, Bad Moon Rising by Credence Clearwater Revival. But on top of that, you've got a lot of, um, there's a lot of string sections running through as well, uh, orchestral pieces. And those are the bits which I can't find. And slowly I've been collecting all these bits up. They're the one bits I haven't been able to get hold of as of yet. Yeah, I've actually had a similar experience. Uh, I went to see um, the Klaus Bedelt Opus Ultraviolet starring Mila Jovovich, which is not a very good movie. It's a very it's a mediocre movie. In fact, it gets more mediocre as the movie goes along. But the soundtrack is amazing. This big, bombastic, electronic, techno orchestral. Like it is um, like it really lifts the first 20 minutes, which is the best part of the movie. And as soon as I heard it, I was like, I, I want this soundtrack. So I went off to, and this is the days when you could go to Amazon and you know, buy it on Amazon. Couldn't buy it on Amazon. Didn't exist. And it was, it was, a, it's a, quite a surprise really, because it was a soundtrack by Klaus Bedell, who did the music to all the Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, he's a big guy, you know, soundtrack guy. But the people who produced and distributed Ultraviolet just decided not to bother. Um, and I've had to go around and find in the dark corners of the internet. The Ultraviolet soundtrack. So, yeah, that's not my favourite soundtrack. Did I just feel it wasn't going to make any money, so why bother with a soundtrack? Was that the philosophy, perhaps? <laughs> well, maybe. I mean, yeah, it is possible that if, if it had just, if the film itself had just been released like three years later, they'd put it out as an MP3 only release and gone, what the hell? Because it's p- pure profit at that point. But they probably did think, as they would be compelled to do a CD release, that would cost more than they would make selling CDs mm. of the soundtrack. I think so. I think certainly the internet 
has had an influence. I mean, I have, it's been years since I bought a soundtrack CD. Cause I don't need to really. If I, if I desperately, if, if in the past I wanted to hear, you know, that, that little, that little bit of piece of music from Batman Rises, you know, Daka 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 Yushi, whatever it was, then I, I got to go and buy the CD. I don't. I can just put it on, look up YouTube. There it is. You can have it on a loop for 10 hours if you want to. So it's, it's, you know, <laughs> that impulse to hear that little piece of music from something or something or other no longer needs me to fork out 13 pounds for the privilege because mm-hmm. it is cheap. It does make it quicker. I watched, um, there's a film called Upstream Colour by Shane Carruth. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. Uh, it's, it's the same guy who did a film called Primer about time travel. If you've yep. not seen either of them, worth checking them out. Both of them are pretty mind blowing. But the soundtrack to Upstream Colour, the moment I watched the film, I went straight on my computer and downloaded the soundtrack. It's absolutely wonderful. Did the same with a film called Monsters, directed by the same guy who did the new Godzilla. Yeah. Not a big fan of the Monsters movie, I had to be sad. I thought it was a bit slow, but the soundtrack was beautiful. So again, halfway through the movie, I was downloading the soundtrack off of Amazon. Yeah. So we've kind of gone two ends of the site, uh, two, two, at two points, which is the modern age of, uh, sort of soundtrack musical convenience and the early days of, of, you know, like, uh, what, 1993, where I would, I would contend that we entered a sort of soundtrack golden age. If we just go a little bit further back in the eighties, they like, they liked the idea of the big package of, of all of the stuff, you know, the things fell into place like star Wars was a big movie. And then later on, and I think this is the key moment when ghostbusters came out and everybody wanted the ghostbusters single. And, you know, that point Hollywood like, so if we put music in a film, then people will buy that if it's like a comp, and it, it became like you know the Top Gun soundtrack, the Lost Boys soundtrack. There are certain key soundtracks from the eighties that are openly and nakedly kind of well put together. The first, um, the first, the, the first wave of all this was not. I mean, for Star Wars, yes, you have a dedicated soundtrack album, but back in the the, the first wave of these, it would actually be a compilation of main themes from well-known movies on an, on an LP. Did you? Did oh you yes, find- obviously. Yeah, I think that, that I think that what we've got to do is draw a line between that, which is perfectly fine. And I had uh, one of those compilations, and the idea of them producing a soundtrack for the film. And of course, when they started out, things like Top Gun and Lost Boys and and associated would have soundtracks produced with, and they were like, well, we have to get you know hot artists, and we have to make them all like charts, and we can put out like three singles, and then we have to spend all this money and do all this stuff, and it's all going to be a big feature. You know, I um, I think that the ultimate end of this madness is something like the Batman soundtrack by Prince, which is a marvelous album. Not sure it's a great Batman soundtrack, <laughs> but. <laughs> it is oh bat dance bat dance my brother had the days. single which was just had the main batman theme and uh, 200 balloons on it yes i've I'm, I'm now got filled with misty-eyed nostalgia for the batman soundtrack <laughs> i might have to run off and find that well, after this podcast. I, I mean part of it is also the age of merchandising and again this is probably the influence of star wars because yes. it's just a very obvious way to have you've already composed the music People seem to like the product. It, it's uh, how it goes. And as, has it elevated composers to greater public recognition? You know. Uh, well, we're going to get to that. At that point, well, I think there's been a weird thing. Because in the era of, well, we have to get a bunch of, like, you know, James Bond, Star Wars, Jaws, all of those, and put them in a row, then you knew who the big film composers were. I mean, for God's sake, can you get more famous in the world of movie soundtracks than, than Ennio Morricone, really? I mean, he's the, the man when it comes to that. And then, you know, John Williams and so on. So you, there was that period. And then as soon as, and I think that was the, one of the things, like an orchestra is actually quite expensive and the recording costs a certain amount. Whereas if you get a bunch of pop artists to record all over the place at their convenience, just one cut, one track, and then you get, then the monetization works a lot better. So they started going, oh yeah, quick, let's go. Now. Oh, and of course the eighties was a big era for like things like, uh, Vangelis doing Blade Runner. And stuff like that. Well, gets us. Yeah. There, there was actually a ten-year lean on him producing the soundtrack, so it didn't come out to the nineties, and it was snapped up by everybody when it came out. 
obviously. Oh yeah, no. I, I, I'm just saying that that kind of thing. I mean, what I, I'm so I'm very sad about this having done this show because when we went back through the 80s and watched a bunch of 80s movies and did a year and a year, you would get so many films where they someone would come up and you get the, like the John Carpenter like no 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 and all this kind of stuff, a particular kind of synthy heavy sound which because now samplers and computers are so ridiculously powerful there is no need to do that and so they gave up and so you don't get those kind of like that's one of the things about 80s movies is synthesized drums and synthesizers and having that as the soundtrack and they you know there's been been a renaissance in there um yeah we're gonna get to that but yeah. yeah Oh, no, yeah, sorry, just, shut you down. Just no, no, I was just going to say, with um, when you look at, I don't know if you've seen uh, Drive, which uh, came out, when did that come out? A couple of years back. Uh, but that's kind of set in modern day, but there's like a whole 80s vibe to it. And the modern soundtrack is retro 80s. Um, another one is a film called Beyond the Black Rainbow. Um, it's a very weird art house film set in 1983. The soundtrack, sort of go back to it, you can't buy the soundtrack, but if you have a look around on the internet, someone has pulled it out of the pulled it out of the um, film in itself. And again, it's an absolutely wonderful thing. Probably one of my favourite soundtracks of uh, last year. Yeah. So I mean, it's yeah. There's things that are coming back uh, in a different way, and, and that's something that we yeah we will get to. But yeah, I, I still kind of think I think that people like film producers don't realise. And or now it's self-conscious. It's like, hey, let's have an 80s synth star soundtrack. Yeah. But at the time, it was like, well, let's save some money. We'll just do it with a synthesizer. And that was one of the things, necessity being the mother of invention and all. I remember like, John, John Carpenter was the director. You know, he was the one that actually sat there and wrote the soundtrack himself. So the cheapness yeah. of it would have been. Well, he, he maintains that the fact that he wrote Assault on Precinct 13 and Halloween was why he got the gig directing the Elvis biopic. He's like, oh yeah, you do musical stuff and you're a director, do Elvis. It's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, alright then, cool. Kurt, do you want to play Elvis? Do I want to play Elvis? And the rest is history. So yeah, um, so th- yeah, the 80s had, uh, they they kind of went for it in a big way as people kind of realized that you could do all these different things and make more money than just the film through as you said Ian merchandising that kind of happened and then i think there was a point um so i suppose actually i've completely defeated my own point here that is the golden age of soundtracks and the golden age of soundtracks ended in the early 90s when uh, quentin tarantino made reservoir dogs the end no discuss that's what I meant to say. Yeah, because the soundtrack to Reservoir Dogs changed the game completely because he did the same thing. He was doing the same thing as the synth guys. He went, well, I don't want to spend a lot of money on a soundtrack. I don't even want to spend a lot of money on a guy with a synthesizer. In fact, I want to spend almost no money. Let's find a bunch of stuff where the rights on the music is really low and it fits my purposes and use that. And he did that. And the rest, you know, that was that was a motive. Everyone's mind was blown because Reservoir Dogs was a huge selling soundtrack and Pulp Fiction was a huge selling soundtrack. And the only thing that came anywhere close to being original to the soundtrack was Urge Overkill's cover of Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon. And at that moment, the floodgates opened and everyone was like, yeah, rifling through the back catalogue. Let's find some music that we could buy up for cheap to put on our movie. Well, um, I think everyone was trying to imitate Tarantino at the time, so he was he was a star of the time, as Grandpa Simpson would say. Yes. Well, we we were in college, Ian. We we did the exact. I mean, without any of the music rights, and thankfully, it's not. It wasn't the modern era, so we didn't get completely caned by uh, copyright people because it was all a bit. Well, we're doing it for a student project, but we just used to like rape soundtracks put on our films. It's go, yeah, we'll have that track, we'll put that on, it'll be fine, and you know, and put stuff on on our movies, and that that was our engagement well you know we didn't have the, we didn't have easy access to copyright free music which we have these days all hail incompetech bow down before his greatness and generosity the popularity of the uh, tarantino soundtracks and then the urge overkill song which then made them absolutely massive 
brought on a lot of an awareness of, you know, a soundtrack can be this great commodity. So what you then happened was then the 90s, you had some very big soundtracks within there too. I'm thinking of his train spotting and Romeo and Juliet, both of them mainly original compositions from artists, but seen it yeah. as a great way for them to make money. And everyone had a Romeo and Juliet soundtrack. Oh yeah, to- totally. They did. And, um, I mean, one, I mean, cause yeah, from our, the nice thing about it was it brought this kind of mix and match attitude. So when me and Ian were doing the films in college, it was like, um, one of our genre movies at the end, I used uh, some stuff that I just got off records. But then there's a movie called Judgment Night, which promised so much and gave yeah. so little. And the thing that really promised was the fact that they did this innovative rap metal soundtrack with uh, it was innovative at the time. These days, people are like rap metal is not innovative. It's like it was then people. The only thing that existed prior to the Judgment Night soundtrack was Walk This Way by Run DMC. That was the true innovation. Oh, and the Public Enemy and Bring the Noise with Anthrax. Two tracks. And then suddenly in the early 90s, boom, it went everywhere. And Judgment Night was a big thing in this with the Cypress Hill and, and uh, Sonic Youth and um, <laughs> famously the big divisive song on the track soundtrack was Ice T and Slayer, which like Slayer fans loved and everyone else was like, no man, too much. So there was that. And so and they recorded this really innovative soundtrack and then the film was just this mediocre crime thing. And then the bad guy was Dennis Leary, uh, who kind of um, got famous for his like uh, no cure for cancer rant. And it turns out, hey, Dennis Leary, just an actor. Uh, who knew? And so because the material wasn't as as explosive as what had been put together for No Cure for Cancer, he was just fairly boring and we were expecting more. So, yeah, that the film itself did badly in America, didn't get released over here for several years, and then eventually crept out on, DV, on uh, video before DVD. <laughs> No such thing as that. And, and yeah, but the soundtrack had been over here and had been in the charts and everything. And I loved it. So I thought, well, being as they're not releasing the film, I'll Robert's track off it and put it on my genre piece. And then Ian's soundtrack, we took one from, there was a film that it was a UK film. So it did get a cinema release, but just nobody went to see it with Harvey Keitel in it called The Young Americans. And the opening theme I remember was uh, the, the best song or the best track of that album well, orchestra it was a real dirge misery dirge wasn't it it was like yes, everything it was. So the flowers are dying the children will have cancer it's a really miserable tune no, it's like just the melody of it it's just so kind of oh, it was, yeah well i mean the, apart from anything else the, the out the um the the end track to your movie was uh portishead roads Yes. Which also went into the Tank Girl soundtrack, but not in such a prominent <laughs> position. And think... Portishead Roads is one of the most depressing songs ever written. Well, the, co- the, like... co- the concept of uh, Portishead's Dummy, the album, was it was a soundtrack for a film as yet unmade. Yes. Mm. And the film even had a name, To Kill yeah, a Dead Man. Yeah, To Kill a Dead Man, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so we, we uh, that kind of collage effect really helped us out in college. I think if you're a media student these days and you've got to make a genre movie, you've got a much tougher task because we could just get away with, oh, it's a sound collage because that's what was hot right now. So we could do it. Whereas if you make certain types of films now, that's not how they soundtrack them. So you, 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 if you were going to look with a critical eye, it's like if you've just ripped off a bunch of like, uh, uh of, so, you know, songs. I, I don't think media students today we, make, we were making a grungy gangster shooty films like we were in the in the early 90s, mid 90s. They could have uh, done, they could do, they could have nostalgia. As I say, these days, copyright fee music is not hard to come by. You can, you can find it. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, the, the I, trouble is, once you, once you start using the copyright fee music, you get an ear for it. And so you start noticing everyone else using it as well. That's the only problem. But it's only if you've, yes. you've, you've delved into that pool yourself does it become a problem. So, yeah. So, the, I mean, yes, but the 90s, I think, kind of had that kind of... Uh, it, there was a sort of flip-flop back and forth between doing some original stuff and making these sound collages, you know, where practical. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And sometimes you got films who lent very heavily on their sound collage, such as uh, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, which is a song by Warren Zevon and then made into a film 
about some people dying in Denver, you know, because song title. That's why. That's why they made it and called it that. And you're just crazy. Is, um, is an example. Is it? Is an example of a film being overpowered by its soundtrack at all? I'm thinking of like Natural Born Killers or something like that. Or Natural Born Killers. I well, Natural Born Killers did get into a stand-up fight with its own soundtrack because it was the first time Trent Reznor had been. Yeah, produces a soundtrack. Yeah, all right then. And that soundtrack album was insanely good. And then the film was a bit mediocre, but it was made by Oliver Stone. So they kind of went toe-to-toe, duking it out. Well, Judgment Night was certainly overpowered by its own soundtrack. The film was terrible, but the soundtrack was interesting. So that that happened. Similar to Judgment Night, there was a film called Spawn, based on the Todd McFarlane comic. Uh, yeah. It came at the end of the 90s. Again, the soundtrack was a mix between... You had two people... So I think you had Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine, um, and he was doing stuff with Public Enemy. Um, it was Prodigy. I've got the sound. Prodigy, was it? Yeah, that's who it was. Uh, but you always had you had a dance and a rock person fused yes, together. Yes, that was that was alternative rock and EDM as opposed to straight hip hop versus metal. So yeah, that was that was an amazing soundtrack. And again, the film was a, that was even sadder because Spawn. They built it up, and then the film came out. It was like, nope, this isn't happening. What the hell? <laughs> the hell is this? Um, so, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, sometimes it did, in fact, happen that the soundtrack got more weight and traction than the actual film, which is uh, which is interesting. And I, I'm, I'm imagining that was always a, 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 a sign of wailing and gnashing of teeth uh, for the producers because... Soundtracks just simply didn't have as much of a profit margin as films, so and didn't have as long a life, possibly. And I mean, they have in some cases. I think people still buy soundtracks to to various things. Oh, only last year I bought an MP3 copy of um, the Twin Peaks soundtrack because I needed it for a game I was running, <laughs> um, and uh, I would listen to it. That was an amazing soundtrack, Angelo Badalamenti. Oh, here's one uh, that is quite unusual. I remember we went to see, uh, Ian, this has come up before, Disclosure, and going, Ennio Morricone did the soundtrack to this pile of crap? And Ennio Morricone even got swamped by that because, you know, I think he probably was like, sorry, I'm making a soundtrack for what now? Uh, here's some, hang on, I'll just... Get my yes. uh, waste paper <clears throat> basket here. Uh, yeah, you can have that one. Uh, uh, actually, that was pretty good. I'll keep that one, and you can have that one. Because <laughs> it's just like, oh, forgettable. It doesn't even come into it. He has like... done some bizarre soundtrack uh, contracts in his time. Um, I mean, Ennio Morricone did the soundtrack to Poltergeist 2, which <laughs> I always think is very bizarre. So, yeah. Um, so then we get into the 2000s. Now, this is a point... It kind of stayed the same right up until, and we've done this recently, I was reviewing all the films for 2003, 2004, that kind of period, and suddenly, I think this is where it exploded, this idea, all of the kind of soundtrack ideas that had gone from 19, the 1980s right up until this point, where there's things like SWAT, which has a SWAT, Daredevil, um, every film I was watching just about, uh, either had it was either like Oscar contender, and if you're an Oscar contender, the conventional wisdom is orchestral soundtrack, very worthy. It's all like that. And then if you're doing any other type of movie, popcorn flick is Linkin Park, Evanescence, Corn. You know, just like spamming you with every you know heavy rock artist that they wanted to get over to you. I mean, there is no point in SWAT. To the and in Daredevil, in fact, to the heavy rock parts of the soundtrack per se, they're o- they're literally only doing it because they want to sell the records on the back of it, and it's just like, come on, man, is this how we're going to play things? And that's what that literally the whole audience did that at once, and it was like, oh, okay, this isn't working. I think <laughs> that early two thousands new metal explosion on film soundtracks just as they put it politely, oversaturated the market. E.g. people were like, literally, if I hear that in Evanescence song one more time, I will vomit. Uh, so, yeah, 
that was a those were dark days I think for for there was a there was a shining light within the early 2000s with the Lost in Translation movie uh, that was curated by a chap called Kevin Shields, who was the main driving force for My Bloody Valentine. Yeah. Uh, and that soundtrack is just a wash of uh, shoegazing static. It, it works so well with the movie, uh, and it's one that I keep, keep going back to all the time. Well, they're, they're, yeah, I mean, it's not like there were... I mean, whenever you say it's a dark time for this... Like, we went through the 90s. Uh, we're not proud of it, but we did. And, uh, you know, at the beginning, we were like, oh, God, this is going to be a real slog these 10 years. And what it, was end, <laughs> it was a real slog. It was a real slog. There were years where, well, it's one of the years in the 90s, so what do you want? But then when there are good films, there are always, you know, you found them and you cherished them. And, and I think it's the same with anything. If it's a bad time, there will be things that go the other way out of that. And, of course, uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, you had uh, the emergence of ex-poppy Clint Mansell as a, a force in soundtracks. Oh, yeah. With the Pie soundtrack, which is absolutely amazing. Yeah. And the Requiem so. for a Dream soundtrack, which is absolutely amazing, that, even though I cannot stand to watch it's, that movie. It's so good, it has no right to be that good and associated with that film. Because I heard no, the no, that's music not the first. Requiem for Dream the problem with Requiem for a Dream is it's a, it's a, it's too good. It's what like, it, does. It, is, it is too good. I, I first heard it, because people use it all the time on YouTube for something or other. I'd say, here's a piece of, what's this piece of music? Oh, it's from this film called Requiem for a Dream. Let's look it up. And you can see the film. What's this piece of music doing? This piece of music should be about two epic armies charging together. It's about people <laughs> dying from drugs. <laughs> yeah, but in an epic way. I mean, the people in Requiem for a Dream, it's not, you know, Grange Hill, just say no, had nothing on that. I mean, what, what Requiem for a Dream essentially says is, if you do drugs, you will find yourself in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, selling your body, your filthy, half-maimed body for money, just to buy more sweet, sweet candy, and all your friends will die or hate you. And that's what it Yeah, really goes, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's like, the, uh, the problem is, cause like some people will go, yeah man, you should show this to all the kids, then they wouldn't do drugs in the schools. And what I'd say to that is, well, they'd be terrified for 40 minutes until they realised that it's kind of going a little bit overboard and that you really, is, you know, not balanced is not a way to get people not to do something. So it's not a very good anti-drug movie because I, yeah, okay, I take what you're trying to do, but it's not an anti-drug message, really. It's just some kind of bizarre, depressing screed about, you know, stuff. Yeah, it's kind of like the anti-William Burroughs, in a way. I just want, it's, it's, um, like, it's like the soundtrack's in a burning house. I want to break in there and rescue it and take it to a better film. <laughs> well, that's what ha- that's what happens. You get soundtracks, and you think, "Oh, if only this soundtrack was on a decent film." You know, you love Ultraviolet being a case in point. Um, so yeah, and and that's that's kind of what we that's kind of what we were trying to do in the when we were at college. You know, rehoming lost soundtracks with films that were slightly bad. I mean, for God's sake, this is this is how bad Judgment Night was. I'd still say my student genre movie was better. I mean, shorter, certainly. So, you know, mm. there we go. Um, so, yeah, so that's... Um, Justin. I'm now expecting... We're getting notice from the RIA now. You, you admitted to pirating copyrighted material in 1993. We asked you to <laughs> cease and desist. Well, we have ceased and desisted. If they can find a copy of my movie, I'll pay them. I can't find a copy of my genre film at the moment. <laughs> um Justin, take me through your kind of library. What, what, how, what is your sort of purchase history of, of soundtrack albums as you as you progress through your adulthood? Well, I mean, soundtrack albums, I guess to start with, when I was a child, one of the first singles we ever got was, as kids shared together, was a seven-inch of Flash Gordon's theme, which was <laughs> a classic. I mean, that already, I mean, that's one of the first things we haven't really talked about it, but Flash Gordon, the whole one well, set up by Queen, they went to Highlander as afterwards whole. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, amazing stuff. It is, yeah. And then, and then Ghostbusters, obviously the single that came out from that, absolutely fantastic. And I even, uh, I don't own it anymore, sadly, but I had a seven inch single and the cassette album of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles album. <laughs> Turtle Power. <laughs> 
That's a yeah. oh, yeah. sample of a, of a, the music going slightly haywire. The second film where the fight bursts into the warehouse where they're having an impromptu, you know, concert going on, and suddenly the guys on the stage start joining the fight and singing music about turtle power. It's like what? I know it's a kids' film, but all my sense of reality has completely broken down at this point. <laughs> Shooting right in the script has malfunctioned. I mean, what what I've discovered recently is a lot of films that I watched when I was when I was a kid, um, or as I got a little bit older. So I'm talking more of a lot of the uh, late seventies, early eighties horror movies. So as Leo was saying, with a lot of the synth heavy sort of stuff, and a lot of like Italian zombie movies, that sort of thing. Um, what I've appreciated as I've got older now is to take those out of the movies themselves and to listen to them. And they weren't ever really released as soundtracks before, but a lot of people now kind of recognize the feeling and the comfort of, of watching those movies and realize, oh, I actually like listening to that that soundtrack by itself. I mean, it's great walking down the street listening to some of that stuff because you're expecting a zombie to come out and attack you at any given moment. As a, a nice heightened sense of reality going through. It's true, isn't but it? But it's become a big... Yeah, and it's but it's become quite a big thing. Um, so uh, I've seen only recently. I didn't get to go. I missed it, but hopefully we'll get to go again soon. Um, Goblin uh, have been uh, touring and they've been playing live sc- uh, screenings of the film Suspiria uh, and Inferno, but then actually playing the soundtrack live over the top. So you're sat there watching it and you're watching the soundtrack being played. Um, so it's just going to show that those appreciations of of uh, stuff that was just there as incidental music in the background, people are really actually taking it on board now and going, yeah, no, this is really good. Um, and and yeah, so we, in our in our journey, uh, our quick journey through the sort of uh, last thirty years of soundtracks, round about two thousand and four, two thousand and five, and and probably as a reaction to like the fact that in the main, all the the big movies were getting encumbered by their soundtracks rather than helped by them there was a bit of a sort of a stepping back at that point which did result in things like i remember people being horrendously unimpressed by uh things like the scores to x-men and the spider-man movies going it's not really very inspirational that's carried on right up until the avengers like in the Avengers, people are like well the music's kind of there but it's not star wars is it I mean, I think this is a, a problem that is having at the moment. They will not allow soundtracks to envelop Eclipse. And then therefore it kind of means that they don't elevate movies on that level. But people have started now to pick up on um, game soundtracks. And then there's even the thing of people producing music that isn't a soundtrack, but sounds like a soundtrack, even though it isn't. Uh, Tourisas is a great one for their Viking metal music, which has these big orchestral-like uh, battle charge moments in it and stuff like that. So I think there's a lot more diversity in music. Probably it comes about because of you know, iTunes, MP3 downloading and stuff like that, that films become focused around a particular song or rather than have a soundtrack, generally people, the, the film company finds it, cheaper to either have like a soundtrack release that just kind of accompanies the film or to have a particular song that is this song is associated with this film and vice versa that's the classic james bond isn't it really yeah you got the one track and then you've got your incidental music put in the background which will be the album fillers yeah and then and but what's really weird is that for those who have always loved soundtracks there's loads to listen to because I've got a massive collection, or not massive, but I've got a, a, a decent size collection of uh, tracks by um, a library music company called uh, Two Steps from Hell. Yeah. Who, yeah, who uh, operate out of Los Angeles, and what they do is they write very quick, synthesized, although most of the time you wouldn't be able to tell, uh, soundtracks for trailers, because. Uh, when they release the trailer to the cinema, the actual soundtrack may not yet be finished. So Two Steps from Hell give them two minutes of orchestral goodness that they put on the thing, and then they allow you to buy it as library music and ends up on the X Factor. You know, like all these television reality television programmes that people <laughs> criticise for them fakely generating tension by putting portentous music. That tends to be Two Steps from Hell. Uh, amazing music yeah. uh, that is the soundtrack to nothing and everything at the same time <laughs> yeah t- TV series is good as well Doctor Who Game of Thrones they've dipped into this sort of thing just off the, off the shelf 
soundtrack. Yeah. Trumpets blaring, strings moving, so stirring. It's gone through the algorithm. But yeah, it's become, exactly. become very big. Enter Shikari released an album this year, and on their uh, Radio 1 session, their bonus track was the Game of Thrones theme. Mm. So there we go. Um, so, yeah, so it, basically we've kind of gone to this thing where soundtrack... Actually, it's true. I've got a thing on my computer called Music Maker Jam, which is really designed for Windows 8 tablets, I suppose. But it, And I think there's supposed to be some sort of collaborative thing where people with the same program running at the same time could create a piece of music together, but I've not tried that because I don't know. But, yeah, you buy genres of sound packs to put into the mix. And you've got, like, dubstep, hip-hop, techno, soundtrack. And soundtrack is now a genre of music. <laughs> um, and you can do, like, a dubstep soundtrack mashup uh, and stuff like that. So, yeah, we've reached a sort of a different age where it's all sort of split out and diversified, which I think is a, a jolly good thing, because then you get stuff... Uh, like the uh, one of the, one of these films that Ian asked about earlier, where got, the film gets eclipsed by its own soundtrack, Tron Legacy, not mm. a great movie, fantastic soundtrack by Daft Punk, uh, but even hipper than that is all the work by uh, a guy called the Perturbator, who writes synthy soundtracks again to films that don't exist. Um, so yeah, I mean this is this is the age where we find ourselves now with with all the stuff around everywhere. Uh, wow, there we go. Cool. We seem to have come to a natural rest. But as we finish up, let us uh, go final thoughts. Uh, seeing as I started with asking uh, favourite soundtracks, Ian, what is your favourite soundtrack of all time or soundtrack piece, your favourite piece of music in a movie? And I think integrated with the movie. What is your favourite musical movie moment? I don't think I can answer that question because my approach to music is to be a scavenger. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it's just, I just, I obsess over little bits and pieces from time to time and then move on. I honestly can't answer that question. I don't know how to, I don't really? even, no. Maybe if we, maybe if the rest of us talk about it for me, you go, oh, hang on, that was no, really no, good. No, 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 well, nothing comes to, no, it's like whatever I'm into. You know, I have a fascination about something. I have, and I have to go look it up and listen to it. Like, I had a piece of music song in my head for a while going, oh, what's it? It goes like da 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 da. How does it? And of course, when it's an instrumental piece, you just can't look up lyrics to find out what it is. And, for some, and, and by some miracle, I found out what that piece of music was. <clears throat> to my depression, I learned it was a theme to the Saw movies. Oh, for goodness sake, of all the things. <laughs> That's not a bad thing. Mm. Don't go dissing the Saw movies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Justin, a musical moment in film that, that sticks with you? Musical moment in film. I'll tell you one piece of music that's very good. is um, There's a theme on 28 Days Later, a uh, big guitar, uh, guitar piece that has been used for adverts all over the place since. Uh, and it's a, it's a wonderful piece of music because it just builds and builds and builds and it's really perfect for what it does. Um, I, I've actually got a weird one now that I come to think of it, because I'm trying, I, I, like Ian, I'm not, I find it very difficult to put it down. Uh, but, uh, I actually have, it's a musical moment and it's not from one movie, but it is a particular musical moment. And what happens is that every time they use this particular piece of music, it creates that musical moment in the film where it appears. And it is the opening to We Close Our Eyes. And it's like in loads of movies, they've heard the beginning, the very opening of the song. Like the rest of the song is fairly irrelevant after that opening. And everything, it's in uh, an Italian horror uh, exploitation movie called Demons, I think. And they're trying to, uh, they cut for it. Basically, people get trapped inside a theatre. Uh, at cinema with this evil cursed object that turns them all into uh, uh, flesh-eating monsters. Um, and at one point, uh, to show, you know, one of the sets of characters you come are some street punks who are in a car, like a convertible car. And everyone else has started out watching this movie with the cursed object slowly working its magic and turning them into flesh-eating zombies. And these are the characters who are going to come in after everybody's gone apeshit. And they're gonna like fight the demons and it, it eventually lose. And the way they introduce the, you know, street punks 
you know, driving down the road, you know, with someone like waving their hands out the back, is to play the beginning of We Close Our Eyes. And it's like, well, it's not the hardest song you could be listening to, to be honest, but it's so <laughs> exuberant that you kind of, they kind of get away with it. And, and that's, it's, the, it's used in several, every time you hear it, you think, oh wow, it's that song again, what is it? And then it goes, we close our eyes, it happens every day. And you go, oh right, it's that song again, okay. Cause it never, it never recovers from its own opening. Uh, but yeah, soundtrack uh, people love it for that moment, the fact that it creates its own atmosphere. You can film a can of beans and put that in. That's one of the things we always argue, uh, said um, in, in college, isn't it? You could put Carl Orff's O Fortuna over anything and it makes it sinister. Yeah. Yeah, so there we go. So, yeah, I like those songs, the songs that bring their mood to whatever you film with them. Um and of course, you know, 2001, Blue Daniel Ross, Space Station. Who can argue with that? There, gone right back to the 60s now. So, uh, yeah, uh, if we've missed uh, some kind of vital soundtrack moment and people are at the moment just like going, oh, I'm not listening to this anymore. I'm going to listen to that soundtrack they've completely ignored for the last hour or so. Where might they go to moan at us about that, Ian? Well, I'm very glad you asked me that question, Leo. They could go to our Facebook page. We can find on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids. And that's 80s as in numbers to 80s. Please go there and like our page. It is our community hub. We put up links to our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting. But our podcasts are what it's all about. And for those who want to point your web browser towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so e-i-g-h-t-i-e-s-kids.podomat.com, please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice, or Download your PC for dark reasons of your own. Uh, but this is only where our most recent podcasts can be found. For the legacy of our podcasts, you must go to... Uh, LeoStanford.com, which is exploding at the moment with content due to the fact that I need more content because I run a media business. So if you go there, you will be able to locate somewhere an archive of our podcasts today, plus video casts and all sorts of other treats and tricks and articles and pictures and good Lord, so much stuff. But the pictures are all photographic in nature because I can't draw for toffee. Uh, so if people want to, oh no, wait, we can't do that bit, can we? We've got other Justin here. Oh, yeah, but you've got something to plug, haven't you, Justin? Uh, maybe. I don't know. Do you want to plug anything at the moment? Uh, well, I suppose I could do. Um, I mean, I'm, well, I write horror books. I've got a couple of books out at the moment. And we've also got a, uh, anthology book, which is going to be for charity. It's going to be coming out in the summer. It's called The Black Room Manuscripts. Uh, it's an anthology of horror stories and there's a lot of contributors going into it. Uh, a couple of guys on this podcast might have submitted a story or two for it as well um so keep an eye out for that uh if you want to have a hunt around to find out any more information just go to my uh website which is jrpark.co.uk um, i have to so say leo i much prefer this justin can we keep him i'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll feed him and take him for walks every day i promise <laughs> the last time uh... <laughs> You wait until our Justin hears this, Ian. <laughs> you will be in the corner. Um, Nobody like me anyway. Nobody puts Justin in the corner. But yeah, so anyway. Was, uh, well, this is not the last time that we, we would already laid plans, and Justin has kindly uh, stepped in uh, to fill in on this occasion. But we have plans for shows in the future in which Justin will be back with us. And in fact, we may create the ultimate Justin paradox by having two Justins on the show at the same time. Oh, <laughs> uh, but if like uh, Doctor Who, now, won't it? The two Justins, you know, <laughs> <laughs> both incarnations. But but for now, uh, we could all rest assured that there's only one Justin on the show yes. at a time. You don't have even a backup though... Ian anywhere, do you? That can do some audio editing. If I get a bit. <laughs> funny or something do you i'm feeling a bit insecure now no no shh no stay there uh, no <laughs> but yeah i'll put him back in the cupboard oh yes and the wife's here by the way Hi. Uh, is uh, that it now is, is why it for the chopping board apparently <laughs> he is uh, all, all, uh, all juiced up to do that yeah, yeah i don't want to play favorites but i have up. a favorite <laughs> <laughs> You've got your no, Justin, I've got know. mine. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't expect you doing this this morning. 
heartily good conversation about soundtracks. I, I can't believe we've never done it before. Did you talk about soundtracks without me? Uh, yes. <gasps> Sorry. Okay, so what do you think about soundtracks then? <laughs> it depends on what we're talking about. Well, we talked about all soundtracks ever. Since well, we, we, we did miss out Twilight soundtracks, which I'm kind of glad. Yeah, um, well, they won't talk about Twiglet anyway. No, we don't. <laughs> Sparky vampires, not on my watch. <laughs> there was a point at which, in the podcast, where I was thinking, yeah, you'd think that Twilight, being a film for teenage girls, would have some sort of something that you could grasp as a soundtrack. But at the beginning, when t- the original Twilight came out, we were like, OK, let's give it a chance. And we actually, me and Sue and other Justin went and sat through it in the cinema, just came out like that. And I, I cannot recall if it even had, a, I guess it must have done, but what it was or how it sounded. Tween wavy mo bollocks. Is that probably it probably one? was, but <laughs> but you'd think... I mean, it would have been something if there was some song that was so hideously awful. It had drilled its way into my consciousness, and every time I thought about it, I ended up having it running round and round you in mean my like head. You like the Celine Dion with Titanic thing? Yeah, like My Heart Will Go On, exactly, yeah. But it doesn't have anything like that. I just cannot remember. I'd have to go and watch it again to are, even Are, are you bemoaning the absence of a catchy, irritating tune from Twilight? <laughs> Well, I'm, yeah, well, I'm not bemoaning it. I'm very, I, personally, I'm very grateful for that fact because I don't have to put up with it. But it, it does strike me as unusual that they didn't even try. So there's all the rip-offs like uh, City of Bones and Beautiful Creatures and blah, blah, blah. And now I come to think about it, not one of them has a single song I remember at all from any of them. And I think that's just, you know, sign of the times, really. I mean, for God's sake, I heard that song the other day the Maroon 5 one about animals, moles. And it's like, that's the kind of thing that is like, that's classic ear, drill in the ear stuff. Because he goes like, animals, and it's not like, it's not an echo. He actually goes, moles. That's not a word. That's not a lyric. (laughs) But it's a hook. Oh, but yeah, it's so like, like that. And if they had one song like that on it, that would be something. But they're not even trying. Good. It's just, just lame. Be grateful. They didn't yeah. try. Yeah, I am grateful for that. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up, Sue, into the... That's why we waited for you to be out before we discussed it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, thanks. I'm joking. Oh, thanks a lot. We did mention Top Gun soundtrack. We did Top mention Gun soundtrack is awesome. Lost Boys soundtrack, that got a mention. It's just the guitar playing by Eddie Van Halen that's brilliant on the on the... Top Gun soundtrack, but Blade soundtrack's a good soundtrack. Yeah, now that is a good point. We didn't talk about the fact that Blade, the first two Blade movies, have not the third one, have, have pr- well, that uh, opening track we used to sell in HMV. Always people used to come in for years after. I've just watched Blade. What's that song at the start? <laughs> oh, can I get a copy of that? They'd like say. Yeah. Yeah. New order, construction, pump panel, reconstruction mix. Yeah. Thank you very much. Nine minutes of do 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 So yeah, there we go. But it's all the things like the Ramstein as well that, you know, was in Matrix and Blade and you know what I mean? It's that kind of the whole nineties thing kind of went that way. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> but yeah, when I uh, so just to forewarn you Sue, when I'm listening to Prince's Batman soundtrack later on. Therefore. That's an atrocious soundtrack. If you're going to listen to soundtracks, I've got better ones. No, but it's like there's, you've, you've left out the nostalgia. I mean, seriously, that. even just go and listen to Vangelis for Christ. It's yeah, I know. Fire, I know, but just, it's nostalgia. Seriously. You can't, I was, you know, young. Bat Didn't know dance. any better. Bat dance was <laughs> it was atrocious. <laughs> but like Are you going to then do the, uh, the U2 thrill me, kiss me, whatever that Oh bit. God, no. By that oh. time, I was old enough to know better. Oh God. <laughs> And you two, we don't even want to talk about you two. Thank God that they never. And since I, all I hear from you two fans ever hear from you two fans is, oh, they're brilliant, they're amazing, and then I just go lemon at them and they shut up. <laughs> that song is atrocious. <laughs> don't care. <laughs> there you go. Right. Uh, so yeah. So there we go. That's uh, that's all the the news that there is fit to print. So join us next time uh, when we'll be talking about something else with a completely different Justin. Over now. 
Bye-bye. Oh, well. Bye. Okay, I suppose just to tell the story. It wouldn't actually be that funny now, because he built it up. I think it was just we were amused <laughs> with ourselves about it. Now, technically it wasn't the first time we met, because I think we lived together, or lived above each other, because the house we were living in was, was a converted into two different flats, upstairs and downstairs. And I think we had an, a new flight movie moving, who was J- Jackie, and she was just like social cannonball, broke down the, the walls that existed in our segregated world. I think there was a bill that came through, and because we were a shared house, we had to kind of divvy up the water bill. So I had to, I had right. to trape downstairs and knock on the door and go and to... Let me just, so, so, to give a bit of background, just before he knocked on the door and I opened it, was the fact that I just moved into this flat with this other guy I didn't know, he'd just earn a house share. And um, I think it had been raining or something that day, so when I got back it had been... It was wet, so I went in and had a shower, so I was walking around my dressing gown on. Now, my flatmate at the time had also done the same thing. So he was walking around with his dressing gown on and he had one of those really small little dogs. So Ian knocks on the door. I answer it in my dressing gown. There's another guy sat there in his dressing gown with one of those little gay dogs just sat there. And Ian's looking at us going, hmm, it's like, I think they're They're homosexuals, <laughs> aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, most people when they meet me think I'm gay yeah. for some reason or another. So at least you had a good enough well, reason Jackie to think did that. call you girly man, as I recall. <laughs> yes, yeah. That is, that is definitely a name I, I remember. Bless her.